A crazed black homeless man dies after being subdued by a white Marine. And the media have their newest George Floyd narrative. New York won't police crime, but they will ban your gas stove. And Joe Biden's banking crisis isn't quite over yet. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. I talk about them every single show. Why haven't you gotten a VPN yet? Get ExpressVPN right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, we're nearing the summer, and that means it's time for some riots. I mean, this is what we do. It's, it's sort of the annual tradition here in the United States. Every summer, we have a bunch of race riots now. This is the thing that we like to do. And we need some sort of hook to hang those riots on. Well, the media have found their newest hook. It's the case of a person named Jordan Neely. So who exactly is Jordan Neely? Who is a 30-year-old psycho- psychotic black homeless man living in New York with an arrest record as long as your arm, 44 prior arrests. Why why is Jordan Neely at the center of the news? Well, the reason is because he is dead. The reason that he is dead is because he was apparently on a subway car and he started screaming at and harassing the various passengers on the subway car. According to Alberto Vasquez, Juan Alberto Vasquez, who's a freelance journalist, he said he started screaming in an aggressive manner. He said he had no food, he had no drink, he was tired and doesn't care if he goes to jail. He started screaming all these things, took off his jacket, a black jacket that he had, and threw it on the ground. Started to get more and more agitated in front of the people on the subway car. At this point, a 24-year-old passenger stepped in, a white passenger who is, uh, who is apparently a Marine, and he put Jordan Neely in a submission hold. Now, they're just in a chokehold and a submission hold. Again, this goes back to police procedures. This guy's a Marine, not a policeman. But the, the idea in a submission hold is that essentially you're putting pressure on the, on the arteries. And what that does, it cuts off blood flow to the brain. It's supposed to knock you out. It's not supposed to kill you. A chokehold is directed at the trachea, which is why it's been essentially barred by every police department because if you damage the trachea, very often the person dies. Submission holds are what you see in, for example, UFC. So this guy is using what looks like a triangle hold. It's a form of submission hold. Well, Jordan Neely ended up dying. So this video, which you're about to see, it's hard to watch because it's a person who's being subdued. What you will notice in this video, however, is a couple of things. One, you will see that throughout the video, Jordan Neely continues to be incredibly agitated. Again, this is a person who was arrested multiple times for drug problems, is apparently schizophrenic, psychotic, etc. He's being subdued by this 24-year-old white Marine. And th- there's another person who's attempting to subdue him. The other person who's not been mentioned in virtually any of the media reports is a black man who's attempting to subdue Jordan Neely. And the minute that Jordan Neely becomes unresponsive, the minute that he stops struggling, somebody says he's not struggling anymore and the Marine lets him go. It doesn't matter because the media treat this as though this is a case of murder, as we'll get to in just one second again. That is largely based on the race of the people involved. If this were a black Marine who had subdued a black man, or if this were a black Marine who had subdued a psychotic white man screaming at people with an arrest record as long as your arm on a subway, then presumably we'd had stories about the heroism of protecting the surrounding population from people who have a history of violence. I mean, Jordan Neely does have a history of violence. This is a person who has an outstanding arrest warrant right now, like today, for assaulting a 67-year-old woman in New York City. So here's what the video looked like. So you can see the... Uh, this is caught on film by that one, Alberto Vasquez. The Jordan Neely continues to struggle. The uh, the Marine is obviously not doing this maliciously. I mean, he's, he's you know, kind of casually holding him there uh, in an attempt to subdue him. And there are two other men who are attempting to also subdue this guy. One is white, one is black. They're trying to subdue him because apparently he's threatening. And then he's on the floor and he's non-responsive. Hey, the train was stopped. The doors opened at the Broadway Lafayette Street, Bleecker Street station, where Vasquez said the conductor had called 911. Apparently, he lost consciousness after being put in the chokehold. EMS workers at the station were unable to revive him. 
the the person who was subduing him, again, a Marine veteran, was taken into custody, later released without charges. Now, the investigation is ongoing, so they, they may try to bring charges against him. It's New York City. So again, attempting to subdue somebody who is getting violent with the passengers may be a chargeable offense in New York City. Being actually violent with the passengers, like apparently there are a bunch of people online claiming that, that this same person, Jordan Neely, had attempted to push them onto subway tracks before. That you just are to let out on the streets willy-nilly in New York City. That's not a problem. Unless you actually push somebody on the tracks and they get hit by a train, at which point we arrest you. In New York City, if you violate the law dozens and dozens of times, you will just be out on the street released in the general public. And by the way, this is the general rule. The general rule is if you as a society decide that you're not going to police crime, you know who could have done something about this? Cops. That would have been great. And it's not as though this person hadn't had interactions with cops. The person is dead because the system decided that it was not worthwhile protecting either the public from Jordan Neely or protecting Jordan Neely from himself or protecting Jordan Neely from the public. Because it turns out that leaving people who are psychotic on the streets to threaten others generally ends with somebody else who is not a cop stepping in to do something about it. Your choices in a society are to either outsource the legitimate use of force to the cops and then allow the cops to actually use force in order to subdue people who are violently threatening others, or you're going to get the predictable ramifications of not doing that, which is others will step in to defend themselves and others. There is no third choice where psychotically violent people just run around being psychotically violent with no repercussions whatsoever. According to the New York Post, as soon as people start expressing worry about Neely's well-being, the, the other people just let him go. The two, let, the two people who are, who are subduing him there, they let Neely go after a few seconds, leaving him lying on his side on the ground, presumably. Vasquez, who was filming it, said he had mixed feelings about the fatal encounter, particularly since he and Neely had not physically attacked he said Neely had not physically attacked anyone on the train before being taken down. He said, I think in one sense, it's fine citizens want to jump in and help. But I think as heroes, we have to use moderation. He said, this would never have happened if the police had shown up within five minutes. Then we would be talking about a true hero. It's complicated. That's correct. That's correct. So the medical examiner has ruled that um, the subway rider choked Neely to death. Or at least it's been ruled a homicide, which generally speaking, when a medical examiner rules a homicide, it just means that it wasn't a suicide and it wasn't natural causes. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean murder, a homicide. According to the medical examiner, Neely was homeless, had been screaming at passengers. Medical examiner says that they're going to go through the full investigation. The incident comes, according to the New York Times, as the city grapples with how to reduce both crime and the number of people with mental illness living on the streets while also respecting the rights of its most vulnerable residents. Now, again, the race component here cannot be ignored. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let's talk about a simple fact. There's no such thing as vacation when you, you have a full-time job. I mean, even when you go on vacation, you need access to your phone to make sure that everything at the office is still going well, everything is fine. Well, this is why I rely on PureTalk. So you don't need to sign one of those crappy wireless com uh, co company contracts out there. You don't need to do that. They lock you into these crazy contracts and you try to get out of those contracts early. They tack on radically large charges. You don't need that in this economic climate. Instead, make the switch to Pure Talk the way that I did. They have no hidden fees, no contracts, no hassle. Pure Talk has a range of affordable cell phone plans to choose from. You can find the perfect option for your needs, like unlimited talk, text, plenty of data for just 30 bucks a month. Pure Talk saves the average family over $900 per year. Think about what you could do with that money. Plus, you don't get cheap, inconsistent service. With Pure Talk, you get the same coverage you're used to at half the rate you're currently paying. I use Pure Talk. Their 5G service is really, really fast. All my business calls are made via Pure Talk. Pure Talk's U.S. customer service team helped me make the switch in as little as 10 minutes. I was even able to keep my phone number. Do the same. Head on over to puretalk.com. Enter promo code Shapiro. Save 50% off your very first month of coverage. That's puretalk.com. Promo code Shapiro. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. So as said, there are multiple people online who are claiming that Jordan Neely attempted to push them on the subway tracks, for example. 
one Twitter account said, I'm pretty sure I had a run-in with this guy a few weeks ago on the F. He was throwing around a city bike and yelling about how he was going to kill people. Most left the car, but this poor Asian lady got stuck by him. So a few of us couldn't leave her alone with him. If it's the same guy, yeah, he was either going to be hurt, going to hurt somebody or get murked by a cop or a bystander sooner or later. Another person said, this man jumped on me, grabbed my shoulders, pushed me toward the track Sunday night at this very station. I was able to run away, but he got physical and chased other people standing on the platform before getting on an uptown train. This whole thing is so sad. Well, yes, I mean, it is sad when you leave mentally ill people on the streets to pose a danger to themselves and others. It's a serious problem. This isn't going to stop the crowds from protesting because, again, the racial component is a large part of this. The media, a huge narrative for the media is that America is a systemically racist society. New York City is a really, really bad place to pretend that that is the case because the vast majority of violent crime in New York City is committed by my people of minority status. That is just a fact. All of a, an extraordinary percentage, very, very high percentage of all violent crime in New York City is committed by people who are either black or Hispanic. Most of the victims are also black or Hispanic. Pretending that New York City is like the center of white on black violence or white on Hispanic violence or any of the rest of this is just garbage. But the media needs stories. They need stories, which is why this will be a national story. Uh, another story that will not be a national story for more than five minutes is this Atlanta mass shootings. There was an active shooter incident in Atlanta yesterday as well. A gunman was accused of shooting five people at a medical facility in Midtown and killing one of them. He was taken into custody after an hours long manhunt that paralyzed Metro Atlanta. That story is not going to be a national news story for more than five seconds because the shooter in this particular case is black. He's 24 years old and he walked into the waiting room of a Northside Hospital medical office Wednesday around noon. He killed one woman. He wounded four others. Three of the victims are in critical condition. But again, this is not going to be a national news story because the shooter in this particular case is a person who is a minority and we're not allowed to pay national attention to that because if we paid national attention to this, then this presumably increases racism. But the way to really decrease racism in American society is to focus in on this case of Jordan Neely. And you can see the entire left responded. Like the entire left went into action. Now is the moment. It's going to be just like George Floyd. Now, again, the George Floyd case is controversial in its details. I'm of the belief that George Floyd pretty obviously died of a heart attack, that, that George Floyd was struggling to breathe, according to the tape itself, in the car before he was even put on the ground and he asked to be taken out of the car. And the evidence tended to show no damage to the neck, no damage to the trachea. And so I'm of the opinion that the officer in that case is actually in prison wrongfully on a murder charge. You could say excessive force, but on a murder charge is, is wrong. But even put that aside, the media ran with the narrative in the George Floyd case that this is evidence of white on black violence, that white on black violence is still the predominant issue in the United States. And so this is going to be the new George Floyd story, is a white Marine took down a homeless black man. And that homeless black man was, of course, totally innocent, had done nothing wrong, this was just a white on black crime, right? That's the way the media are going to play this. And you can already see the narrative starting to form in real time because the media are not spending an enormous amount of time reporting on the arrest record and activities of Jordan Neely. Instead, what you are seeing is left-wing activists trotting out video of him impersonating Michael Jackson on the subway. So for example, the Working Family Party of New York, which is a far left group in New York, they're putting out videos of Jordan Neely dancing as Michael Jackson on the subway. Well, if you were dancing as Michael Jackson on the subway, nobody would have been choking him out obviously. It's that he was threatening people on the subway and acting more and more psychotic on the subway. That is the reason that he was put in a submission hold in the first place. But that's not what you're going to be told. Okay, here he is doing a Michael Jackson routine. And the New York Working Families Party tweeted out, Jordan Neely loved to dance and perform. 
On Tuesday, while suffering a mental health crisis, he was choked to death while people watched and cheered. So first of all, it's not true. There's no one in the tape who is cheering. People are trying to subdue him, and then he dies. Jordan needed care. Instead, he was brutally murdered. This is not who we are as New Yorkers. No, as New Yorkers, you are citizens of a city that will not protect you, which necessitates that civilians step in and actually do the protection. And the, again, the entire left wing activated. I mean, it was, it was left wing Power Rangers to activate here. So, for example, you had Toure, who literally at one point, I believe earlier in his career called Broccoli Racist. He tweeted out, a homeless man yelling on the New York City subway is normal. We see that all the time. What's not normal is for a Marine to sneak up behind him, put him in a chokehold and unalive him. That's not justified. The Marine could have just done nothing. He should be charged. First of all, I, I do love the notion that in New York City, it is perfectly normal for homeless people to just yell at you on the subway. That aggressive, like if you're a citizen of New York, you should just take it for granted that you're going to be assaulted on the subway. That's an amazing statement about New York City. Tariq Nasheed, who again, is a group of people who are looking for some summer riots here. An innocent black man with a history of mental illness named Jordan Neely was brutally choked and murdered by a suspected white supremacist who the police refused to charge and the white media is protecting. Question, any evidence that this is a person who is a white supremacist at all from Tariq Nasheed? We don't even know the guy's name. What, 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 is, what is the evidence here? This culture of anti-black racism where suspected white supremacists are allowed to live out their Bernhard Getz, Charles Bronson death wish fantasies of murdering black people with impunity will not be tolerated. And it's not just, you know, professional race agitators like Toure or, or Tariq Nasheed who are saying this sort of stuff. It's the inestimably stupid and vitriolic AOC. So Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who again is a congressperson from this area, sounded off as well. We'll get to that in just one moment. First, now I need my sleep quality. Okay, and the only way I get a good night's sleep, because again, got my kids, they keep me up at night. My wife tends to want me to go to bed later than I actually want to go to bed. And then I have to wake up earlier because of the kids. This means when I'm on the mattress, I better be asleep. And this is why I rely on my Helix Sleep Mattress. They have now launched their most high-end collection, Helix Elite. Helix has harnessed years of extensive mattress expertise to bring their customers a truly elevated sleep experience. The Helix Elite collection includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. I've had my Helix Sleep Mattress for, I don't know, seven, eight years at this point. And it is excellent. If you're nervous about buying a mattress online, you don't have to be because they have a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? You wouldn't order coffee that, that you like the generic coffee. You get a special order. A thing that you spend eight hours a night on should similarly be made just for you. I took the Helix Twiz. I was matched with a firm but breathable mattress, which is what I need. But you don't need my type of mattress. You need your type of mattress. So go do the same thing. Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. This is their best offer yet. Hurry on over to helixsleep.com slash Ben with Helix. Better sleep starts right now. So it's not just, you know, the professional racial agitators. It is also actual public officials who are sounding off on this. So Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who is just an egregious specimen of insipidity, nincompoopism. She's a deeply stupid person. I'm, I'm not sure that Alexander, like, I think that she's both stupid and malicious, which is a hard combination to do. I very often say when it comes to politics, that I try to attribute most things to stupidity rather than malice, but she's both stupid and malicious. So she tweeted out, Jordan Neely was murdered. But because Jordan was houseless, houseless is the new euphemism. New euphemism just dropped houseless. So we, we went from hobo to homeless to houseless and crying for food in a time when the city is raising rents and stripping services to militarize itself while many in power demonize the poor. The murderer gets protected with passive headlines plus no charges. It's disgusting. Can I point out that New York has been entirely Democratic governed for the last decade? That Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is a congressperson in this area? By the way, there are plenty of resources available for people who need a meal. 
There are homeless shelters in the city of New York. There's a person who is apparently a longtime drug addict, a person who is psychotically living on the streets, and it's New York government that has decided to allow this to happen. Why do you think the subway ridership has remained wildly down even after COVID? Mainly it's because people are afraid of being hit with a samurai sword or pushed onto the tracks by people like Jordan Neely. That is the reason why people are not riding the subways in New York City anymore. I know, I have lots of friends in New York City. It's, it's an amazing thing. So AOC sounded off, of course, because again, they have to have the George Floyd narrative. The George Floyd narrative allows for them to play this inside-outside game with the federal government and with the state government where they protest from the outside. They find friendly legislators to then drop very progressive policies in the name of racial equity. That's the inside-outside protest game that gets played here, riot game that gets played here. Ayanna Presley did the same thing. Ayanna Presley, another, she's the adjunct member of the squad. She's the Ringo star of the congressional squad. She tweeted out that same video of Jordan Neely dancing dressed up as Michael Jackson. And she tweeted, he was 30 years old. Black men deserve to grow old, not be lynched on a subway because they were having a mental health crisis. Jordan deserved better. Accountability now. Lynched. It's now lynching. So the black guy who's holding down his arms, is he also involved in the lynching? And also, uh, do any of the other citizens of New York City have rights? Or is it their obligation to be physically assaulted, abused, screamed at on the subways without any intervention? Because, by the way, I, I will point out here that if the cops had done the exact same thing, it's not as though Ayanna Presley and AOC would sound off any differently. In fact, it would be louder. They'd say, oh, look at these official sources cracking down on the innocent black man. And that's the shtick. Brad Lander, New York City Comptroller, he tweeted out something similar. He tweeted out, New York City is not Gotham. We must not become a city where a mentally ill human being can be choked to death by a vigilante without consequence or where the killer is justified and cheered. That is a New York City Comptroller. Well, you know, as the New York City Comptroller, if you would wish for that not to happen, you could let the cops do their job. You could. You know when this wasn't happening? Under Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor. You know when this also wasn't happening? When Michael Bloomberg was mayor. You know when it is happening? Post Bill de Blasio, post Eric Adams, post the wild left-wing turn of the city. The reason Rudy Giuliani became mayor in the first place is because this used to be how the subways were in the 1970s and 80s. That is the reason. Jabari Brisport is a New York State Senator, District 25, and he also is using the similar language. Quote, Jordan Neely was lynched. He had no food, no water, no safe place to rest. He had the audacity to publicly yell about that massive injustice. So they killed him. Oh, is the yelling about the injustice is why the, not the threatening of the fellow passengers, not the not the fact that this person was, again, psychotically violent and had an outstanding arrest warrant that had not been filled because there are not enough cops in New York City and they haven't been given the actual ability to do their jobs. They're going to use the language of lynching. They're going to pretend that this is the exact same thing as like Emmett Till because again, they need the narrative. The narrative is necessary because they can't run based on their governance their governance in New York, they're the ones in charge of the system. And so now they're going to try to morph this into Bull Connor in Birmingham, Alabama, 1965. It's insane. It just demonstrates, once again, the facts do not matter to a group of people who actively wish for there to be protests, who actively wish for there to be race riots, who actively wish to make race relations in the United States worse. This is an ugly situation. It's a complex situation. But pretending that it is predominantly about racial discrimination and not about failures of law enforcement. Failures, by the way, of the mental health system. If this person was legitimately mentally ill, why was he allowed to live on the street for presumably a decade? Why? It is the highest form of cruelty and the left has been doing it for years, for years. Yeah, I'm not a big government person, as everybody knows. I've been actively calling for 20 years for there to be better funding of mental health services. And not only that, yes, involuntary 
commitment of people who are psychotic. You cannot allow them to live on the streets threatening themselves and others. But the left opposes that stuff. They don't want people to be able to be committed. They think it's a right to live on the street and threaten to push people on the subway. And if someone protests and if somebody stands up and stops somebody from threatening others in the subway system, then apparently that person is, is the vigilante. That person is violent. That person is scary. Black Entertainment Television did the exact same thing. BET tweeted out, he needed help. Instead, he got a death sentence. The New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner confirmed the cause of death for Jordan Neely was determined to be compression of neck or chokehold. His performances on the subway didn't go unnoticed by the New York City community. Mental health is the discussion. What can we do to prevent this from happening again? Again, the answer is very obvious. You want to stop this sort of stuff from happening again? And then they tweet out, hashtag protect black men. You want, you want to know how to stop this? The answer is very simple. When you have psychotic people living on the street, you involuntarily commit them and you give them the medication they need. And if they refuse to take the medication, you give it to them anyway because they are psychotic. Okay, that is number one. Number two, you allow the cops to do their job in making sure these people are not psychotically threatening themselves and others on the streets. This is not difficult. The left doesn't want to do any of those things. So instead, the predictable consequence is people defend themselves and others. And when it goes wrong, when something bad happens, then we prosecute the person who actually attempted to protect others on the subway system. Meanwhile, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, he says, don't worry, guys, the city's safe. We're going to continue making the city safe. You're doing an amazing job, mayor. Not right for dangerous people to stay on our streets longer. But it's also not right for others to language behind bars as the criminal justice process drags on. I'm confident today, broken together, we are going to move in a direction, as the governor stated. We're not spiking the ball. But we know we are moving towards the goal line and we will be successful in making and continuing to have the city and state to be the safest state in America. Eric Adams is literally bragging about how safe New York City was yesterday when this person was choked down on the subway system. A slow clap for the geniuses in blue city governance who have decided to disinvest from the police to hamstring them and prevent them from enforcing the law and that it's a right for people to live on the streets. Just genius level stuff here. Ugh, it's so ugly. In one second, we'll get to what New York actually is focusing its resources on, namely the, the real danger to us all gas stoves. First, the weather is warming down here in Florida, but let, let's be real. It's always pretty warm down here in Florida. That means pool days with the kids and lots of grilling in the backyard. Yes. The last thing you need to be doing when you're getting ready to host guests is driving around worrying about where to refill your propane grill tank. Yes, I have done this myself. This is where Cinch saves you time and money. Cinch, C-Y-N-C-H, is a propane grill tank home delivery service. They deliver propane grill tanks directly to your door. Cinch delivers on your schedule, requires no long-term commitment or subscription. Plus, delivery is completely contactless. You don't have to wait around at home. Track the order on the Cinch app from anywhere. Whether you're grilling steaks or lighting up the patio heater on a cold night, Cinch's propane delivery service ensures you have the fuel you need to make the most of every single moment. Go online to cinch.com or download the Cinch app to order. New customers can get their first tank exchange for just 10 bucks with promo code Shapiro. That's cinch.com or download the Cinch app. Use promo code Shapiro. Get your first tank exchange for just 10 bucks. Limited time offer. You have to live within a Cinch service area to redeem it. Visit cinch.com slash offer for details. And I've actually done this. I actually had to drive around looking for a place to get a propane tank. It's not fun. Instead, head on over to cinch.com slash offer. Okay, so New York can't protect its citizens. It can't protect people who are psychotic or the people those psychotic people are victimizing. But they can definitely stop you from using your gas stove. So you remember that time when they completely gaslit you about natural gas? Like they literally gaslit you. It's amazing. So they, they said, why are you guys so worried that we're gonna get rid of gas stoves? Right? There's a story suggesting that New York, the EPA, that they were considering cracking down on gas stoves. And a lot of us who like to cook were like, um, you know what is really hard to do? Cook well on an electric stove. I hate electric stoves with a fiery passion of a thousand suns. 
They're terrible. Electric stoves do not cook the same way. They, they just don't. Fire is good when you're cooking things. Okay, well, a lot of us got rather agitated about the idea that the EPA or state governments were going to start cracking down on gas stoves. And so the entire media was like, this is just a right-wing lie. We are never coming after your gas stoves. Fast forward for like a month. New York has become the first state in the nation to pass a law banning natural gas and other fossil fuels in most new buildings, a move that could help reshape how Americans heat and cook in their homes in the coming decades. Late Tuesday, the New York legislature approved a $229 billion state budget that will prohibit natural gas hookups and other fossil fuels in most new homes and other construction, a major victory for climate activists. The move, which will likely face a court challenge from the fossil fuel industry, will serve as a test of states' power to ban fossil fuels outright rather than simply encouraging developers to build low-carbon buildings. So what does the law do? Well, it requires all electric heating and cooking in new buildings shorter than seven stories by 2026 and in 2029 for taller buildings. It allows exemptions for manufacturing facilities, restaurants, hospitals, and car washes, but the measure doesn't do what some climate activists had feared, give cities and counties license to override the bans. That means that your local restaurant might still be able to use, you know, flame cooking, but you won't be able to. All so that the environmentalists can feel super good about themselves. By the way, the notion that this is going to radically reduce carbon emissions and therefore adjust the global temperature is insane. And the amounts of, of carbon emissions that are saved by shifting to electric stoves from gas stoves are not measurable compared to sort of world output of carbon emissions. It's totally nuts. But Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, was very excited about it. She said, this is really big stuff, guys. This is how you transition. Just like we had to go from a you know, long time ago to transition from coal as your energy source, we do yeah. have to transition. There are clean energy alternatives. It's going to take time. And I want to make sure that New Yorkers don't get hit hard for the cost. So we're going to roll this out. But new buildings that are going up, they can find, they can go electric, they can do heat pumps. This is how you transition. Man, I, I'm so glad they've got their priorities straight over in the state of New York. And broadly speaking, across the country. I mean, the Democrats really are on top of the things that matter. Like, for example, they're totally on top of immigration. Uh, but I mean, they're not at all. In fact, the New York Times reported last month that migrant children are being put to work across the country. So we now have the Biden administration presiding over a vast wave of illegal immigration that is ending with Dickensian street urchins working in the factories. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. These are, the, these are the people who are like, we need to raise the minimum wage. We have to care for all. your children are my children. They're all of our children, unless they're migrant children, in which case put them next to the fryer at McDonald's now. Go do it. According to The New York Times, in the spring of 2021, Linda Brandmiller was working at an arena in San Antonio that had been converted into an emergency shelter for migrant children. Thousands of boys were sleeping on cots as the Biden administration grappled with a record number of minors crossing into the United States without their parents. Because the Biden administration has refused to do the thing that, that the Trump administration did and keep families together. So instead, they decided to just release a bunch of minors into the interior with actual no, no actual guardians. Well, that ended up badly. Miss Brandmiller's job was to help vet sponsors. She'd been trained to look for possible trafficking. In her first week, two cases jumped out. One man told her he was sponsoring three boys to employ them at his construction company. Another who lived in Florida was trying to sponsor two kids who would have to work off the cost of bringing them north. Within days, she noticed one of the children was set to be released to the man in Florida. That's despite notifying the Department of Health and Human Services. She emailed the shelter manager. A few days later, her building access was revoked during her lunch break, and she was never told why she had been fired. Over the past two years, according to The New York Times, more than 250,000 migrant children have come alone to the United States. Thousands of those kids have ended up in punishing jobs across the country, working overnight in slaughterhouses, replacing roofs, operating machinery in factories, all in violation of child labor laws, according to a recent Times investigation. All along, there were signs of this explosive growth in the labor force and warnings that the Biden administration ignored or missed, according to the New York Times. How Xavier Becerra, head of Health and Human Services, has retained his job 
is beyond me because, quote unquote, veteran government staffers and outside contractors told HHS, including in reports that reached Becerra, that children appeared to be at risk. The Labor Department put out news releases noting an increase in child labor. Senior White House aides were shown evidence of exploitation, like clusters of migrant kids who had been found working with industrial equipment or caustic chemicals. So they're taking like 14-year-old kids who are crossing the border illegally, and then they were shipping them off to guardians who ended up being, you know, contractors with acid. As the administration scrambled to clear shelters that were strained beyond capacity, children were released with little support to sponsors who expected them to take on grueling, dangerous jobs. Amazing job, Biden administration. Just an excellent, excellent job. 250,000 migrants. This is back in April. And, and now it's getting worse. And now it's getting worse. We're, we're supposed to be hit with Title 42's ending. We're about to be hit with 10,000 illegal migrants arriving on the border every day. 10,000 of them. And so the Biden administration is sending like 1,500 people to the border to try and help police this thing. Now, just a quick flashback. Vice President Kamala Harris, one of the least talented politicians of our era. Flashback of 2018. Donald Trump was president. He sent troops to the border to try to crack down on the illegal immigration crisis. And she said it was inappropriate at the time. Thank the men and women who serve our military and serve in the United States Marine Corps. Um, I also believe that the administration made a decision to deploy them based on a political agenda. And um, I believe that it is inappropriate to require the limited resources of the United States military to be used in such a way. Again, now they're sending 1,500 troops to the border. By the way, Karine Jean-Pierre says, don't worry, it's all humane. She says, we'll deal with lifting Title 42 in a humane manner, says the uh, least talented White House press secretary of all time. You mentioned that the administration is preparing for what is to come or what will occur after Title 42 lifts. Can you describe or provide some detail as to what the White House is anticipating when this COVID-era border restriction expires? So, I'm not going to... We know, um, and I've said this, we have tools that are in front of us that the president's going to use um, to, to deal with what we are seeing at the border. And this is something that uh, the president has taken initiative on since the beginning of this administration. And we want to do this in a safe, orderly, and humane way. This administration is just a rolling series of crises. Speaking of which, remember those regional bank crises? Uh, those are not over, not remotely. We'll get to the latest possibly failing regional bank in just one second first. You remember that President Trump recently issued a warning from Mar-a-Lago, quote, our currency is crashing. We'll soon no longer be the world standard. That will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. Well, as we saw with First Republic Bank, you never know when your bank can go under. It's one reason why people are pulling their money out of regional banks and they are putting it into things like gold because they just don't trust the system. Totally understandable. Listen, I'm diversified, at least a little bit into precious metals. The fact is that gold is the asset that since biblical times has withstood famine, war, political and economic upheaval. I've bought gold from Birch Gold in preparation for that uncertainty. You can trust them as well. You can own gold in a tax shelter retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's correct. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. The best part, you're not going to pay a penny out of pocket. When currencies fall, gold is that safe haven. You know, it's, it's unclear which direction the dollar is going to go. But the best thing you can do, diversify. It's just smart strategy. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Thousands of happy customers. Text Ben to 989898. Get your free info kit on gold again. Text Ben to 989898. Also, uh, we have a great new book out uh, over at DW Books. And it's really important right now. When you watch what's happening with the Jordan Neely case and the quote-unquote systemically racist American system, there's one book that debunks all of this crap. And that is Heather McDonald's brand new book, When Race Trumps Merit. Heather McDonald is shutting down 
the malignant ideology of anti-racism in that book, When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Heather's book exposes how BLM-fueled equity obsession is tearing down Western civilization, destroying meritocratic standards of achievement because those standards apparently have a disparate impact on certain minorities. We're not enforcing criminal law because of all of that. The predictable result is stuff like Jordan Neely. Lowering standards, as Heather McDonald points out, jeopardizes scientific progress, destroys public order, poisons the appreciation of art and culture. Go check out When Race Trumps Merit by Heather McDonald. It is a brave book, and it is a book that you are going to need to read. It's a must-read for anyone concerned about the state of the country and worried for our future. It's available right now, When Race Trumps Merit, available at Amazon or wherever books are sold already a national bestseller. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's fiscal crisis is not over, not by a long shot. So the Federal Reserve yesterday raised rates again by 25 basis points. Then they, they hinted at the possibility that they would pause the rate hikes. But we will see. We will see how long that lasts for because inflation continues to be embedded in the American economy. Powell said yesterday, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, who has been a giant failure so far, that the economy is still likely to avoid recession. He may be the only one saying this. He said, we've raised rates by five percentage points in 14 months. The unemployment rate is 3.5%, pretty much where it was, even lower than when we started. It wasn't supposed to be possible for job openings to decline by as much as they've declined with our unemployment with our unemployment going up. Well, that's what we've seen. He said he didn't rule out the possibility of an economic slump. And then he suggested that the biggest issue is raising the debt ceiling. Uh, no, it really, really is not. The biggest issue is that we have systemic debt problems in this country that will come to fruition at some point in the future. Small cuts to prevent the debt ceiling from being hit is a pretty solid deal that McCarthy is currently offering Joe Biden. But again, the, the reality is that, that no one thinks this, this current economic crisis is over. Here's Jay Powell talking about the debt ceiling. I'm wondering if you can talk about the account of possible effects of a debt limit standoff. You've said repeatedly that the ceiling must be raised. But do you see any economics effects of even getting close to a default? And what type of situation would that look like? Um, so I, I wouldn't want to speculate specifically, but I will say this. Um, these are fiscal policy matters, for starters. And they're, uh, they're for Congress and the administration for the elected parts of the government to deal with. And, and uh, they're really cons you know, consigned to them. From our standpoint, I, I would just say this. It's essential that, that the debt ceiling be raised in a timely way so that the U.S. government can pay all of its bills when they're due. A failure to do that would be unprecedented. Maybe Powell should talk to Joe Biden about all of that. As far as the increases in the interest rate, he said a decision on a pause was not made today. But he said that there was a noticeable change in Fed guidance. Now, all of this did not stop the stock market from plunging yesterday. So you would have expected that after the Fed raised the rates, but then said, maybe we'll pause it, that people would have been kind of optimistic. Wrong. Stock futures declined on Thursday, the day after the Federal Reserve hiked rates by another 25 basic basis points. One reason is because of fears of contagion returning to regional banks. Over at Zero Hedge, they write, earlier today when Jerome Powell openly lied to the American people during their press conference, stating without a hint of irony that the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient, we balked. How could this former liar, lawyer lie so brazenly to the American people when in just the past few weeks we've seen over half a trillion in bank failures, making the current bank failure episode even worse than the global financial crisis? Well, the next regional bank collapse is already on its way. Shortly after close, Bloomberg reported that another regional California-based bank, PacWest Bank Corp., was weighing a range of strategic options, including a sale. It's a Beverly Hills-based bank. Its financial conditions were far worse than the Fed has been working, thought. And it's been working with financial advisor. They've now been considering a breakup or a capital raise, according to Bloomberg sources. Why? Well, there was effectively a run on the bank. It turns out that a lot of people who are seeing the coming economic crisis, they're pulling their money from the banks because they don't believe that those banks are going to be able to guarantee depositors. If you are a mid-sized regional bank, 
with high levels of tech investment, for example, tech investors are pulling their money. They see hard times are coming. They need that money. They want it out before that bank collapses and they don't want to have to deal with the FDIC. So they're just pulling out their money right now. This means that a lot of those banks who have overinvested in faith in the government, that's what bonds are, faith in the government, they got screwed because of those increased interest rates. And now a lot of those banks are really on the edge. And you're going to see the large get larger. JP Morgan or something is going to eat up PacWest. On Tuesday, PacWest tumbled 28% as investors retreated from regional bank stocks following JP Morgan's deal on Monday for First Republic Bank. That did nothing to ease concerns about regional bank viability. Now, again, there's a case to be made that the FDIC should have just stepped in if they, were, if they wanted to maintain the existence of regional banks. I mean, they're subsidizing the deal anyway. Having a giant bank eat up a regional bank means, what, like I, as an investor, why would I leave my money at a regional bank? I would just pull it and I'd put it in the giant bank. I know the giant bank ain't going to go under. The federal government won't allow it to go under. And then I don't have to worry about my cash. Or I'm going to take my money out and I'm going to put it in some other sort of fund. I'll put it in like a money market account. Like Why, why, why would I do that? So all these regional banks, they're in tr- there are a lot of regional banks that are in serious trouble. If you think that this thing is over, it is not remotely over at this point. So essentially, this leaves the Fed with not a lot of not a lot of choices. Either they're going to have to cut the rates in order to maintain the asset base of a lot of these regional banks, injecting liquidity, or they're going to see a lot more regional banks fail. So we're not remotely at the end of this thing yet. Meanwhile, there are new details that are now emerging about Joe Biden. Amazing story from the New York Post today. Quote, a whistleblower tip about a document allegedly putting President Biden at the center of a bribery scheme triggered a guessing game across Washington Wednesday as journalists and politicians poured over Biden's extensive history of interactions with his family's overseas business associates. Biden, 80, regularly met with son Hunter and brother James's international connections during and after his eight-year vice presidency, including citizens of China, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Russia, and Ukraine. However, the tip pertains to alleged wrongdoing by President Biden, meaning it may not necessarily involve figures linked to his relatives. So it's unclear exactly what is being alleged. All we know is that a whistleblower turned over a document that suggests bribery of Joe Biden himself. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky and Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa revealed the whistleblower information on Wednesday. They said the tip involves an alleged criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Biden and a foreign national relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions. Grassley said, if it's as explosive as what we've heard, we expect it to be very difficult to get. But we know it's unclassified now. The American people deserve transparency from the FBI. This is what it is all about. Comer set the FBI a deadline of May 10th to to produce the document, leaving at least a week for speculation to mount about the dealings and countries involved. So all we know, I mean, it's very vague. All we know is a whistleblower has said there is a document that links Joe Biden to bribery. It involves a foreign national and it involves American policy. So there are a few areas where this could come up. One is Ukraine. Obviously, we've seen before the accusations that Hunter Biden was being paid by Burisma to basically make connections with daddy, who was then vice president of the United States. And we also know that Joe Biden was flexing his power In Ukraine, it could theoretically be Mexico, according to the New York Post. Hunter Biden visited Mexico at least six years in a row from 2011 through 2016 while his father was VP. Details remain vague on the amount of money that changed hands and whether Joe Biden was involved at all. It could be Russia. Biden allegedly met with one of his son's Russian associates, billionaire Yelena Baturina, and her husband, former Moscow mayor Yuri Lushkov, at the same April 2015 D.C. dinner that was attended by another Russian national. Baturina allegedly wired $3.5 million to a firm associated with Hunter more than a year prior on February 14th, 2014, and apparently met with Hunter and his associates, Evan Archer, that April in Lake Como, Italy. It could be Romania. It could be China. I mean, Hunter Biden was going around the world picking up bags of cash because his daddy was Joe Biden. So what are the chances that Joe Biden was not involved in any of this? Honest to goodness. Now, when it comes to charging people criminally, obviously, 
if there's smoke, there's fire, doesn't apply. But we are not in a criminal court right now. So there's a lot of smoke. I mean, Hunter Biden was going to half a dozen countries and picking up bat, like sacks of actual cash from foreign countries that are almost entirely dictatorships or corrupt oligarchies and using his daddy's name. And then his daddy was meeting with these people. So that doesn't look like the least corrupt thing you have ever seen. But don't worry, the media are focused in like full bore. They're focused in on, um, on Clarence Thomas. So the latest accusation about Clarence Thomas is that Clarence, we know that Clarence Thomas is very close with a billionaire named Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow is conservative. Harlan Crow did vacations with Clarence Thomas. There's no accusation that Justice Thomas was involved in any case involving Harlan Crow. There's not even an accusation that he really violated his disclosure requirements as a Supreme Court justice. It doesn't matter. ProPublica is like going full bore after Clarence Thomas right now. They're really trying to force his retirement while Joe Biden is president. That's what's happening right now. So the latest accusation is that in 2008, Supreme Court Justice Thomas decided to send his teenage grandnephew to Hidden Lake Academy, a private boarding school in the foothills of northern Georgia. The boy was far from home. He had lived with the justice and his wife in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. for years because Thomas had taken legal custody of Martin when he was six and said that he was raising him as a son, which seems like a very nice thing to do, right? He's his grandnephew. Tuition at the boarding school ran more than six grand a month. Thomas did not cover the bill. A bank statement for the school from July 2009 buried in unrelated court filings shows that the company of Harlan Crow paid the tuition. The payments extended beyond that month. Apparently, Crow paid Martin's tuition the entire time he was a student there. Now, what's the accusation of uh, corruption here? Is the accusation that Harlan Crow somehow bought some sort of judgment from Clarence Thomas? Because if so, I'm missing it. Like there has to be another half to the accusation. If I give charity to a person, and then the person does nothing for me in return. I help out a friend. By the way, I've done this. You help out a friend with money. They need money in a, in a crunch. Does that mean that it's corrupt? I mean, not unless I then demand something of them that's corrupt. Is there any allegation that Harlan Crow demanded anything of Clarence Thomas, that Clarence Thomas delivered anything to Harlan Crow? The answer, of course, is no. Which is why Mark Paletta, who's a friend of Justice Thomas, put out a statement today saying, the Thomases have rarely spoken publicly about the remarkably generous efforts to help a child in need. They all, they've always respected the privacy of this young man and his family. It's disappointing and painful, but unsurprising that some journalists and critics can't do the same. The Thomases quietly and honorably devoted 12 years of their lives to helping a beloved child in desperate need of love, support, and guidance. In 1997, Justice Thomas and his wife brought their grandnephew to live with them, their great-grandnephew, actually. They agreed to take in this young child, much as Justice Thomas's grandparents had done for him and his brother in 1955. Justice Thomas and his wife made immeasurable personal and financial sacrifices and poured every ounce of their lives and hearts into giving their great-nephew a chance to succeed. In the summer of 2006, the Thomases were struggling to find a school where they could send their great-nephew. In discussing these challenges with their dear friends, Harlan and Kathy Crow, Harlan recommended the Thomases consider one more option, sending their great-nephew to Randolph-Macon Academy. Harlan had gone there. He thought the school would be a good fit. Harlan had financially supported Randolph-Macon since the 1980s. He had funded scholarships for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Harlan offered to pay the first year of Justice Thomas's great-nephew tuition in 2006. That payment went directly to the school. Harlan Crow's office confirmed he did not pay the great-nephew's tuition for any other year at Randolph-Macon. After some time, Randolph-Macon recommended the great-nephew attend a boarding school in Georgia for a year. Harlan offered to pay the first year of tuition for their great-nephew at the Georgia school, and those tuition payments went directly to the school. By the next year, the Thomas's great-nephew returned to Randolph-Macon. He moved back to Savannah after he turned 18. The story is another attempt to manufacture a scandal about Justice Thomas. So what exactly is the scandal here? That Harlan Crow was generous in supporting a friend's great-nephew in going to a private school. That is the supposed tremendous scandal. By the way, if, th if that is a scandal, first of all, what a terrible man, Harlan Crow. You know, actually paying for tuition for kids. Just, just awful. Just absolutely awful. And again, there's been no allegation that either Justice Thomas violated his legal strictures in terms of reporting requirements, or two, that Harlan Crow ever asked anything from Justice Thomas. 
in the legal field. So it's an absurdity. You know how absurd it is? It's so absurd that we have a parallel case that the media just don't care about. According to Luke Rosiak over at Daily Wire, liberal Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor declined to recuse herself from multiple copyright infringement cases involving Penguin Random House, despite having been paid millions by the firm for her books, making it by far her largest source of income, according to records. ProPublica doesn't care about that, apparently. So Sonia Sotomayor literally took like $3 million in advances from Penguin Random House. And then she didn't she didn't recuse herself from a bunch of cases involving Penguin Random House. No, it doesn't matter. She's fine. She's a wise Latina woman. In 2010, she got a $1.2 million book advance from Knopf Doubleday Group, a part of the conglomerate. In 2012, she reported receiving two advance payments, totaling $1.9 million. In 2013, she voted in a decision for whether the court should hear a case against the publisher called Aaron Greenspan versus Random House, despite then fellow justice Stephen Breyer recusing after also receiving money from the publisher. Greenspan was a Harvard classmate of Mark Zuckerberg's who wrote a book about the founding of Facebook and contended that Random House rejected his book proposal and awarded the deal to another author, author who copied the book and turned it into the social network. So Justice Breyer accused himself. Sotomayor did not. No one cares. In 2017, Sotomayor began receiving payments each year from Penguin Random House itself. That continued annually through at least 2021. The most recent disclosure available totaled more than 500 grand. In all, she received $3.6 million from Penguin Random House or subsidiaries. And she just sat there and made a bunch of judgments and cases that involved Penguin Random House. No one seems to care. Again, there's not even an allegation that Harlan Crow had a case ruled on by Justice Thomas. Doesn't matter. This is all an attempt to get Thomas. It's the thing that the left wants more than anything. Well, it's not going to happen. Well, meanwhile, again, Joe Biden's administration has been a boon to everyone, including eighth graders. We have a report from the Wall Street Journal showing that eighth graders' test scores in U.S. history and civics fell to the lowest levels on record last year. So the kids are getting stupider, no shock. In the first release of U.S. history and civic scores since the start of the pandemic, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, showed a decline in student knowledge that reversed all gains made since the 1990s. According to the data, 13% of eighth graders met proficiency standards for U.S. history. 13%, meaning they could explain major themes, periods, events, people, ideas, and turning points in the country's history. About a fifth of students scored at or above the proficient level in civics. Declines in students' understanding of U.S. history that occurred before the pandemic continued. Long-standing gaps in student achievement across specific groups persisted, according to data. Low-performing eighth-grade students had significant drops in civics and U.S. history scores. High-performing students mainly held steady. This is, of course, true. Bad educational systems, they tend not to affect the highest performers because the highest performers are still smart. The, the kids who have trouble, however, get left behind. The following federal test scores in U.S. history and civics coincide with the downward spiral seen in other subjects tested since the pandemic. Peggy Carr, National Center for Educational Statistics Commissioner, said that she was shocked by all of this. She called it woefully low in comparison to other subjects. The average score in 2022 for eighth grade students in U.S. history was 258 out of 500. So everyone is failing, apparently. There's really solid stuff right there. And of course, there are racial disparities in the statistics. The, the, The fact that the federal government has focused in on wokeism in the schools, if the schools were open at all, has not helped matters whatsoever. This is why, by the way, it's, it is fun to watch everybody who's involved in shutting down the schools now running headlong from their own positions. So Anthony Fauci yesterday had the temerity to suggest that we have to stop playing the blame game about shutting down the schools. Dude, I, I see why you want to escape the blame game. I, I have some feelings as to why you wish to escape the blame game. Some of us were saying schools should be open as of like the summer of 2020. Some of us were saying that they never really should have shut down because the stats were very clear. The kids were not getting sick. I had to move my kids to, to Florida to find an open school. Anyway, it, it, this is absurdity. Here's Anthony Fauci, one of the most damaging people in possibly human history. <laughs> but I want to know what you think 
you and the community got wrong was the closing of the schools too draconian how much of a delay did the fact that nobody fully understood the asymptomatic spread of this, nobody figured out that it could actually bust through certain vaccine levels as well. What are the real yeah. takeaways and yeah. the real lessons for I public think, health? Yeah. I think we have to get away from the blame game because so many of the things that you have mentioned mm. were unknowns at the time. Uh, is it, it, we have to get away from the blame game. Well, I mean, you could either you know attempt to avoid the blame game because this is your fault, or you could just lie. So Corinne Jean-Pierre says that they tried to open the schools. This is the worst White House, world's worst price White House press secretary. Here she's explaining. No, we, we did. We really tried to open the schools. No, we didn't. You're working at the behest of Randy Weingarten, whose main job was to make sure that teachers stayed home and got paid for doing nothing. Here's Corinne Jean-Pierre. Woof. Look, as you just said, kids have lost so much in the pandemic. This is why when the president walked in, he made that he made a priority uh, to open schools. Uh, one of the things that was important Liar. to make sure that the, our kids who have lost so much were able to go back in person school if they choose, have the resources that they needed uh, that to, to really succeed and move forward uh, in their education. And we saw that, unfortunately, the pandemic had a, uh, a unfortunate effect on our young on our young people. Liar, liar. These these people are liars. They're again. I, I wish I could say stupidity, malice. That is a lie. That is an outright lie. The CDC was openly changing its standards on how to reopen schools based on the advice of non-scientist, non-epidemiologist Randy Weingarten, who does not give a crap about the nation's kids. These people are liars. You want to know why the educational attainment has gone down in the United States? Because these people have taken over the entire educational system and their insistence is that they be able to shut down when they want and open when they want and not only shut down and open when they want, also Teach the kids books like Gender Queer. This is the most important thing. Kids don't need to know anything about American civics or history. What they really need to know is critical race theory and gender identity. That's the thing that they. That, that's why, if you if you listen to the left these days about education, what is their chief priority? Fighting school choice and making sure that states do not pass laws barring critical race theory and teaching of sexual orientation in schools. This is the thing they care most about. This is why you have Kamala Harris, again, world's worst vice president, suggesting that the, the great risk to kids right now is the banning of books. Now, what she never mentions is that what we are talking about when we say banning books is not providing pornography to children in school libraries. She doesn't mention that. The biggest problem in our schools right now is not, quote unquote, book banning. It's that the kids can't read and they can't read because you guys don't care about whether the kids read. These are factories for ignorance promoted by the federal government at the expense of billions of dollars. And they're, and they're, and they're yeah, doing this routine about book banning, such garbage. And when we think about where we've been in the last few years in terms of everything from anti-Asian hate crime to what we are looking at in terms of attacks on fundamental freedoms like those that, of a woman to make decisions and a person to make decisions about their body, to the attacks we're seeing on voting rights, to the attacks we're seeing on... on, on LGBTQ and trans folks, the attacks we're seeing where there are literally, can you imagine in this year of our Lord, 2023 book bans? Year of our Lord. I mean, really, like, like She's a religious what? lady, Kamala Harris, deeply. Book bans. Okay, the kids, if you, if you had your brothers, the kids couldn't even read. They'd just be getting drag queen story hour. Kids being read to by drag queens. That, that's like your top priority. And they wonder why educational performance is down. Because maybe you don't care about the education. You don't. I've yet to find a Democratic school district in a major American city 
that is doing like an amazing job. Show me. Really, I'm waiting to hear. I was a student in LAUSD. The only function, the only functional schools were magnet schools, which they then attempted to shut down. The same thing happened in New York City. It's, these people are absurd. And then claiming that they tried to reopen the schools during the pandemic. We can all see you guys lying. We can all see you lying. Ugh, it's frustrating. Okay, time for some things I like and some things that I hate. So, things that I like. Denis Villeneuve, the director, that dude is on like a historically good movie run. If you look at his IMDb over the past few years, just tremendous. So he had Dune in 2021. And then in 2017, he had Blade Runner 2049, which is a really good movie. He had Arrival in 2016, which is a really good movie. He had Sicario in 2015, which is a really good movie. So his last few movies have been all good to great. I thought Dune Part 1 was spectacular. I thought it was fantastic. And now he's dropped the trailer for Dune Part 2. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm definitely here for it. Here's a bit of the trailer. Imagine water. If you dive in, you can't reach the bottom. You dive in? Yes, it's called swimming. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe you. In the shadows of Arrakis lie many secrets. But the darkest it's, of it's them all... It's such a great-looking film. Oh, Florence Pugh. Look at the cast on this, on this film, by the way. The end of it's a hell of a cast. My father didn't believe in revenge. Nothing fancy. I understand. Nothing fancy. There are very few films that are made now that demand to be seen on the big screen. This is definitely going to be one of them. Javier Bardem and Austin Butler is, uh, is the villain, I believe. Now? Honestly, the weak link in this film is going to be Timothy Chalamet. I, I, I do not understand. I, I, I honestly, God, do not understand the Timothy Chalamet of it. I, I don't understand why that guy's in like every movie. But the rest of the cast is spectacular. That was, the biggest problem with Dune 1 is that everyone is great, except for Timothy Chalamet. But, I mean, come on. This looks great, right? So when I get excited about a movie, that's a fun thing. So hopefully that movie comes out November 3rd. So that's going to be a, a bit of a wait, but it looks great. It looks just spectacular. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, so first thing that I hate today, it, it is amazing. So Dave Portnoy, this is the problem with you know being corporately funded. So Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy had to announce on Wednesday that one of their popular hosts, a guy named Ben Mintz, was fired from the company after he said a racial slur accidentally while reading rap lyrics on a live stream earlier this week. So he made the mistake of, he was reading, he was on a live stream, and he was reading the rap lyrics. And as he went through the rap lyrics, I believe he used the N-word reading rap lyrics. And Barstool's parent company, Penn Entertainment, forced Portnoy to fire him. The, the entire Barstool team was against this. Barstool CEO Erica Nardini and longtime talent Dan Katz said that he made an honest mistake. Mintz tweeted, this morning, I made an unforgivable mistake slipping on air while reading a song lyric. It's not an unforgivable mistake. It's just a normal mistake. I'm sorry. The only thing that makes a mistake unforgivable is when people are unforgiving and jackasses. He clearly did not mean, he wasn't calling somebody the N-word. He was reading a lyric. He said, I meant no harm. I've never felt worse about anything. I apologize for my actions. I'm truly sorry and ashamed of myself. Honestly, we get more abject apologies in American culture for somebody accidentally saying the N-word while reading rap lyrics than we do from actual murderers and rapists in our society. It's an amazing thing. Penn acquired 36% of Barstool Sports from the churning group for $163 million in early 2020, and they bought the remainder of the company for an additional $388 million this past February. Portnoy said that the parent company made the call 
to fire Mintz over concern the incident could jeopardize regulatory gambling licenses across the country. How? How? how what, what does that have to do with regulatory gambling licenses exactly? Penn paid a lot of money for Barstool, said Portnoy. They have to make the best decisions to protect their business. I trust and respect Jason Oden, who's the Penn CEO, and he's doing what he thinks is right. Doesn't mean I'll always agree, but he deals with things I don't have to think about. He said, I, I, he, Portnoy said, they believe there's a chance a lot of state could pull their licenses because of that. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. That's just, that's corporate, that's corporate cowardice by, by Penn right there. I feel bad for Portnoy in the sense that, you know, he made a business deal. Once those strings are attached, though, the strings are attached. And, uh, and that is a stupid and ugly situation, obviously. Okay, other controversial comments getting people in trouble of similar ilk. Uh, a person named P.K. Subin, who is apparently a hockey commentator of some sort, he got himself in trouble the other day. Why? Because he uh, made a joke about Lizzo. You are not allowed to joke about Lizzo. She is one of the great artists of our time and also the most beautiful woman alive. So uh, here's P.K. Subin getting himself in trouble. I was very impressed by their forecheck, their battle level. Big game for uh for pack a lunch. Listen, maybe they need to pack a Lizzo size lunch. Big picture basket. Because you know, they weren't prepared in my opinion. Okay, so PK Subin says a Lizzo size lunch, and people got mad. So the, the good news for PK Subin is that he's black. So they won't accuse him of racism. If a white person said it, then they accuse him of racism. But some Twitter users were very upset about all of this. The 33-year-old athlete joined ESPN as a hockey analyst last fall. He hadn't addressed the controversy so far, nor should he, because there's nothing wrong with saying Lizzo size lunch. She is a literal fat activist who made a show on Netflix about how fat she is. Is she not fat? Are we supposed to pretend she's skinny? Her whole point is that she's fat and beautiful. He didn't even say that she's not attractive. That's He just said Lizzo size lunch. Apparently that's controversial now. Amazing what now counts as controversial. Also amazing what counts as not controversial. So video has now emerged of a trans influencer who is clearly a gay dude saying that if uh, if men do not want to have sex with him, it is because they must be gay. I know it, it breaks the brain. Here we go. I don't really personally use passing as like my threshold for womanhood. I understand that a lot of trans people want to pass. It's a goal. I respect it deeply. It is not one of mine. It's not how my fluidity functions. I don't live for the validation of other people deciding what they think that my gender passes as. I love my presentation. I don't need your validation from it. I do not receive this. And I would really caution you about policing other people's gender expressions because it's just not your business. If you look at me and you see a man, that's your transphobia that you are projecting onto people like me, and you're just making the world less safe. So, Harry or Dylan Mulvaney just dropped. If this dude says that if you look at him and you see a man, it's because you're a transphobe. So, gentlemen, if you do not wish to have sex with this very obvious male who has full facial hair, body hair, penis, and balls. You're, you're gay. I don't know what to tell you. If you don't want to screw that dude, you're gay. That's just the way it works. That's the way it works. I didn't make the rules. They made the rules. This is the, this is the society in, in which we, we now live. Yeah, through the looking glass, people. Joining us online is Yael Eckstein. She is the president and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews overseeing all ministry programs and serving as the organization's international spokesperson. With over a decade of nonprofit experience, Yael has the rare distinction of being a woman leading the world's largest religious charitable organizations. Most recently, she won the Jerusalem Post Humanitarian Award. Yael, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you, Ben. So obviously, 
You, know, you, you guys are a sponsor of the show. We really appreciate that because you're doing amazing work. And Israel is currently celebrating its 75th anniversary, which is pretty amazing. Want, want to get your perspective on that, obviously, as leader of, a, of an international fellowship of Christians and Jews. Well, I think, as always, you can look at the world through two different sets of eyes. You can see the darkness and the issues and how things are looking so bleak these days, or you can see the beauty and the light. And the truth is, there is so much in Israel that brings so much hope to me as a mother of four who's raising my children in this war zone. There is still so much light and so much beauty. So as we celebrate 75 years of the first time in 3,000 years that uh, the Jewish people have had a home, and we say 3,000 years old, 75 years young. And uh, my family actually goes back 11 generations in Jerusalem. So after being exiled for 2,000 years, coming home, and especially now with the war in Ukraine, to be able to have a homeland for these Holocaust survivors as another war rages that the fellowship is able to bring them home to Israel and say, it's Christians who love you who made this possible. I just see so much hope. Ahead. So the, the fellowship is doing amazing work in helping a lot of Holocaust survivors who are in Ukraine. Obviously, you have a father-in-law who survived the Holocaust. I've worked with Holocaust survivors before. These are amazing people. The people in Ukraine who are Holocaust survivors didn't just survive the Holocaust. They then survived the Stalin regime. Uh, and the and the fall of the Soviet Union, and now they're in the middle of a war. Can you can you describe sort of the situation on the ground for a lot of the Holocaust survivors who are currently still in Ukraine? Well, it changes daily. Let me tell you about Ludmila. She's one of the amazing Holocaust survivors that we evacuated from Ukraine. So we have Aliyah flights bringing uh, Jews from the war zone in Ukraine, including Holocaust survivors, number 1,500 orphans out of Ukraine to neighboring countries and home to Israel. And uh, then you have these Holocaust survivors who are elderly, who are sick, who are bedridden, who aren't able to just get on an evacuation bus and cross the border to Moldova. So we started this program where we have volunteer doctors with ambulances going into the war zone. We heard about Ludmila, who's a Holocaust survivor from Bakhmut, which is in eastern Ukraine and one of the heaviest places of fighting, uh, went into Bakhmut, evacuated her on a stretcher, brought her in an ambulance over to Moldova, where we set up a whole medical facility, sponsored a flight, a medical chartered flight to Israel uh, that we brought her home to Israel. And then the Israeli government takes over everything. So there was a uh, ambulance waiting on the tarmac to bring her to the hospital that's covered by Israel and uh, all of her care is covered covered by Israel until the day she dies. And I went recently, we bring all of the refugees for Passover, we bring them uh, food boxes and uh, clothing cards and all different kinds of gifts. And I went to go visit her and she looked at me and she said, Yael, I would not be alive right now if it were not for the state of Israel and if it were not for the fellowship who rescued me. And so that's what Israel represents to me, not only for Ludmila, but for millions of others who have escaped war and persecution and for the first time in thousands of years have a place to actually go to. So Yael, it is amazing the amount of charity that's being given by Christians on behalf of, of Jews and on behalf of people who are trying to get to the state of Israel. Maybe you can speak to the, the amazing work that's being done by Christian donors in helping to make all of this happen and why that connection exists in the first place. Well, the selflessness that I see in our donors is something that inspires me every day and um, really helps me to work to do better and better and better. When I know that somebody's giving $25 from their tithes and giving something up so that a Holocaust survivor can have a food box, I make sure that every single penny goes to that food box. Um, so on one hand, we have this huge budget where we helped last year over 2 million Jewish people in Israel and the former Soviet Union with basic needs. But on the other hand, I see these donors, over 700 
thousand donors across the world who are giving from the little they have to make this possible. And so what I see through the fellowship who's non-political, we specifically are non-political. We work with any government, anyone who shares the same humanitarian mission, we will work with and uh, work together in order to help more people because that's our only focus. And so what I see by these Christian lovers of Israel and they pray for Israel, pray for the Jewish people, what I see is that even though there's so many stigmas politically around them, their intention is so pure that they're giving to an organization that they don't, they're not trying to evangelize. They don't have any connection with our donors that they just send in their check of $25. And it's enough to know that they're helping a Holocaust survivors without any political statement, without any religious statement, simply over 70% of Nazis identified as Christian. And what our donors would say, they weren't Christian because they didn't act Christ-like. And so we have a whole generation of millions of Christians who want to show what Christian love is. And it's an honor to be able to help save lives by doing that. So, yeah, obviously you're doing work with people in Ukraine. You're also doing work with with people in Israel as well. Israel is going through a rough patch right now, uh, not just sort of in terms of domestic politics, but also in terms of the wave of terror attacks that that Israel is now experiencing. Uh, it is uh, you know amazing that the international community continues to try to play a sort of moral equivalency game with regard to Israel defending itself. Now, what what, what have you been able to accomplish on the ground for people who are suffering in Israel as well? Yeah, well, the reason why I kind of smiled a little bit when he started talking about the issues that Israel faces is because it's true. They are serious and something that Israel has to work out. Um, but what I see in the microcosm of the fellowship office in Israel is the diversity of Israel. Not many people know that over 20 percent of Israel's population are non-Jews and have equal rights and the same representation. And actually, the head of our security program, the fellowship has built over 5,500 bomb shelters. We work with every single municipality to help them with whatever their security needs are. Are, whether it's a Druze village or a Bedouin village that doesn't have a, 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 a ambulance to respond to the terror attacks and the rockets, because rockets target every single city. It doesn't matter if it's Druze or Bedouin, the rockets are falling there as well. And so we've built we've built bomb shelters in their cities. We've bought uh, ambulances. And when they didn't have anyone to run those ambulances, we trained 15 people in the village to be first responders so they could actually use it and help save lives. And so what I see in the fellowship is this diversity that the head of our security program is a Druze. We have someone who handles our East Jerusalem feeding program who's a Muslim. We have ultra-Orthodox from Haredi cities. We have secular from Tel Aviv, and we have uh, everything in between. And so it's true that Israel has to figure out kind of our story moving forward and where we all fit in. But it's also true that there's a certain brotherhood on the ground that hasn't changed. And it's an honor that our humanitarian mission has continued to breed that brotherhood. We haven't had any discussions on politics inside of the office. Many people go to the uh, different rallies, but inside of the office, everyone's able to put it on the side to save lives. And I think that it's really a, an example of what can be if we can prioritize what's most important in life, which is helping the other instead of fighting. And as far as the terror attacks, I mean, unfortunately, it's nothing new. Um, we have to stick together. That is the answer. As, as you know, Ben, in Israel, most of the terrorists are actually taken out and terror attacks are stopped by civilians. And the civilian doesn't ask who are they targeting, who are they shooting, who's the victim of this terror attack. They simply step in to help. And when you see all the people in Israel running towards a terror attack in order to help the victims, not away from it. I think that really sums up the story of Israel, our strength, and why ultimately we're going to be fine. 
Well, folks, if you wish to give to the International Fellowship for of Christians and Jews, go to benforthefellowship.org or give them a call at 800-331-3737. Yael, thanks so much for joining the show and thanks for what you do. Thank you so much, Ben. All righty, folks, we've reached the end of the show. We'll be back here tomorrow with much, much more. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show.